As soon as I saw that interview, I knew what had happened. He must have not known it was on the record. I mean, it totally was on the record. You almost wonder if he's addicted to kind of the publicity. It also makes you wonder what kind of advice he's getting right now. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Wednesday, November 23rd. Today, Teddy Schleifer is here to discuss crypto billionaire Sam Bankman-Fried's stunning fall from grace. A firehose of money that was supposed to bankroll Democrats and progressive causes for years, not decades, has seemingly evaporated overnight. Teddy and I talk about the fallout. And later, Julia Alexander stops by to discuss what Bob Iger can do to turn around Disney and make its streaming division profitable especially when Iger was responsible for the streaming strategy in the first place. We'll hear about all that and more in today's episode, Powers That Be. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be, netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. Happy Wednesday, everybody. I'm joined today by Teddy Schleifer. Teddy, I think this is a big podcast for us because... If people are traveling today, we might get a lot of streams and downloads here. A lot of pressure. That's true. With its number one host, number one guest. I will say, I was just glancing at the revamped and redesigned Puck homepage. And there is an article here above the caption, Editor's Pick. And that would be your story about the Bankman-Fried mystique. Okay, so double, double hype here for you. Got a lot to live up to. You've obviously been covering Sam Bankman-Fried and his influence on democratic politics, the effective altruism movement. Uh, it's been about two weeks since his crypto exchange FTX collapsed and his whole business and enterprise and even persona has kind of been exposed, tarnished, whatever you want to describe. What's the fallout two weeks out here? Still alive and kicking. I mean, physically, he is physically still alive. The fallout is developing, obviously, but I think we can draw a few conclusions two weeks out. First is that the Sam Bankman-Fried political, philanthropic, industrial complex is either dying or dead. You know, I think in the early days here, there was some hope that maybe there'd be some exculpatory evidence. Maybe Sam would find someone else to take over his stuff. I'm a seller on that at this point. I've reported that, you know, Sam Bankman-Fried is trying to get the other big effective altruist Democratic donor, this guy named Dustin Moskovitz, to kind of take over a lot of his political and philanthropic work. 
the sense I'm getting is like, it'll be pieces of it, if anything. And the scale of this, I think, is also coming further into view, Peter, just in terms of assessing the fallout. You know, how much had Sam spent on these projects over the last three years? And and the figure that I'm sort of kind of coming up with in my head, and this is like 70% reported, 30% informed speculation, you know, a little bit of pixie dust in there too, is $100 million. That I think over the last couple of years, Sam has spent $100 million. We have seen some things that are public, you know, him spending $15 million in a primary in Oregon, his organization buying a $3 million townhouse in Capitol Hill to kind of work over lobbyists and operatives. We know that Sam's nonprofit, his lobbying group in Washington on pandemic prevention, raised $22 million last year. The scale of this, this was not like some podunk, you know, guy with a plan who takes a couple of meetings. Like there were tons of staff, tens, you know, maybe as much as $100 million spent on this stuff. All that went poof. So that's the other thing that I think we're coming to terms with two weeks out is like just how 60 to zero this thing went just as fast as it went zero to 60. One other thing I want to ask you about is you've talked to Sam Bankman Fried before. Do you have a sense of just like how he is responding in private or managing the enormous like scrutiny slash pressure slash investigations on him now? I mean, do you have a sense of like what his life is like right now? So there are signs that he is taking it seriously and there are signs that he's not. I know for a fact that that his family um, has been very involved with kind of his recovery, defense, whatever you want to call it. I've reported that both his mom and his brother have been like very involved with democratic politics. His mom leads this major democratic donor group called Mind the Gap. She resigned from the organization that she founded in order to kind of help her son during this moment. Uh, his brother, named Gabe, who runs kind of Sam's political organization, also resigned, part of, you know, an attempt to not be a distraction. And there's kind of a family, you know, running around Sam to take this seriously. Because, I mean, obviously, like, it is pretty serious. Like, this this is a kid who could end up in jail. Signs that he's not taking it seriously. Um, do you follow him on Twitter, Peter? You know, I followed him because of you. There you go. <laughs> After like one of our first podcasts about him, I was like, I should pay attention to this guy. Well, I mean, over the last couple of weeks, you know, as this has been coming out, he's been like kind of doing some gimmicks around this, you know, for for the engagement. Like there, there was a period where he was like tweeting like a letter every day. It was almost like he was forming an acrostic or, or you know, spelling something out in, in, in real time. So, so there's that. And there's also just, you know, he, he is doing occasional interviews, which is certainly not a strategy that would a lawyer advise to do. The most eyebrow raising one, and certainly the one that was blowing up my phone late last week was he did an interview with Vox. It was over Twitter DM. I thought Vox actually did a fun job in the presentation, like actually just posting the screenshots of the DMs. As soon as I saw that interview, I knew what had happened, which was that he must have not known it was on the record. I mean, it totally was on the record. So, you know, his fault. So wait, I, just to interrupt, I kind of thought the same thing. Like, unless he was just like tripping balls or drunk or like disassociating, people don't do that kind of back and forth without either agreeing that it's on the record or it's sort of like implied. Like, oh, I never said it was off the record. And uh, a few journalist friends of mine reached out sort of suggesting it might have been the latter. Mm. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, uh, I think it, it definitely technically was on the record. And there's a public service element here, obviously. Did Sam think it was off the record? Um, I'm sure. I mean, he said he did. He said he did think it was off the record. I'm sure, you know, Sam feels burned. But you can argue that in this situation, the public right to know outweighs any perceived and not actual off the record agreement. For folks who haven't read the interview, Sam basically admits 
lots of kind of crazy things, including that like lots of his philanthropic stuff was just kind of a smoke screen for him to be seen as the good guy, so to speak. He, he goes into detail on kind of ways in which his company crumbled and, that, and the relationship between FTX and his hedge fund, Alameda. Those are crazy things to admit even off the record. Yeah, totally, totally. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the sort of thing where, where it makes you obviously question his judgment and and the fact that this is all happening on, on Twitter DM makes you question it even more. Like, like so that, that's why I'm, I'm bringing this up, Peter, to answer your question about how he's taking this and if it's if he is understanding the seriousness of it, you almost wonder if he's addicted to kind of the publicity, right? Um, you know, he spent so long being in the public eye it's just a different era and, and also makes you wonder what kind of advice he's getting right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of think the addicted to the attention thing is is true. You know this better than anyone. Like typically like mega donors or even big just normal donors are like don't really like talking the press. Some really do. Most can be hard to track down. And like you go on YouTube and like this guy was like doing an interview with like Chuck Todd's like web show <laughs> for like MSNBC. Oh, the Peter, there's way, way less impressive interviewers that he was doing it with. Yeah. No, no, I'm not saying, I'm not saying like Chuck isn't impressive. It's just like in my head, I was like, oh, like that's a big get. It's like, oh no, this guy's just like available for everybody. <laughs> yeah. Random YouTubers, you know, there was a little bit of a Pete Buttigieg strategy. And like to some extent, I guess it was working, right? I mean, like, you know, he had a lot of credibility and he he was a, a celebrity and, you know, was at the forefront of kind of crypto regulation and political giving. And like part of that, like Pete in the 2020 primary is like, if you say yes to things, like you will, you can take advantage of the fact that other people are saying no, right? It worked until it didn't, right? Teddy, you were nice enough to make a little cameo on my Snapchat show, Good Luck America, when I was covering this. One thing I came across in, in writing that script was Republicans are dinging House Majority PAC, Senate Majority PAC, the Democratic National Committee, any number of Democratic representatives who took money from SBF and basically like making the case are you going to donate this money or, you know, actually like maybe give it back somehow because a lot of people lost money? <laughs> sure. Is that just a like a PR hit from Republicans, like kind of like a layup sort of oppo thing? Or is there any possibility that Democrats would give this money away or somehow find its way back to people who saw their bank accounts liquidated? Why not both? Whenever any donor is implicated in in some scandal. Like this is like the easiest, you know, thing in the book. But look, I mean, there is a reality that the amount of money that's been spent by Sam does make this like more significant than just some random person who gave 5,900 bucks and, and now is, you know, shown to be a bad man. Though I do think that kind of misses the point. These like small max out checks, like whatever Republicans can can hit, you know, Kirsten Gillibrand for taking $3,000. But like the, the Sam operation was much bigger than that. And that's really where he had power. And Washington wasn't through the max out check. I'm sure most of these people barely know who Sam is. I mean, to the extent that they do, it's from his other stuff. It's the crypto lobbying. It's kind of the pandemic lobbying. The influence comes very little from the $3,000 checks that, you know, you must return in order to be a good person. It really comes from the other stuff. That's why I was asking. I mean, I feel like there's always someone who there's like a handshake photo with a donor who like got indicted later. And like, I just don't think voters actually care, but I actually think it's kind of like an interesting like moral question. If people did lose their money, like if the DNC took X amount of money, where should that go? Not to the state Democratic Party <laughs> in like North Carolina. Um, all right, Teddy, thank you so much. Have a great Thanksgiving, man. You too. Happy Thanksgiving, folks. 
When we come back, Ben Landy asks Julia Alexander what Bob Iger can do to turn around Disney. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am. I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. The Chili Pad Bed Cooling System is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. This offer is available exclusively for powers that be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleepsleep.me slash powers because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odysseypodcast, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash odysseypodcast now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash odysseypodcast. Welcome back. I'm Ben Landy, chatting with my pal, Julia Alexander, contributing author and streaming expert at Puck, and also director of strategy at Parrot Analytics. Hey, Julia. Hey, Ben. How are you? I'm very good. This has been an exciting week. I want to dive right in and get your thoughts on, of course, the huge news out of Disney, where Bob Chapek was, of course, shown the door over the weekend, 
Bob Iger stepped back into the breach after a very, very short retirement. It seems like the entire creative community is, is taking a, a, a sigh of relief with Iger back at the helm. But the bigger question is, can Bob Iger actually fix streaming at Disney? Because when you set aside the other things that Chapek may or may not have gotten wrong, at the end of the day, Chapek sort of inherited a playbook that Iger created before he stepped aside. Last quarter, Disney lost $1.5 billion on its direct-to-consumer. That's a huge amount of money. But of course, the entire market is down for streaming. It's, it's a tough business. It's expensive. So what can Iger actually do here to cut costs or generate more revenue in the short term? Yeah, and I think this is one of the key parts about Bob Iger returning to kind of shepherd this company at this moment in time. It's not only a chance for Bob Iger to kind of fix the person he chose as his successor to end his legacy on, but it's an opportunity to go back and fix this one thing that he said before he left. He said the most important thing that he'll do in his tenure as CEO of Disney is to launch Disney+. Plus. Right. So if we think about what streaming was in 2019, their competition was just starting to emerge, but Netflix still held a really dominant position. Disney was pretty sure they could capture a pretty large percentage of the market share, which turned out to be true even under Chapek. And so Bob Iger sent into motion this idea of what Hulu, ESPN+, and Disney+, Plus were set to become over the next two years. Then, of course, the pandemic happened. Wall Street decided that they were going to pivot away from their metric of success, from subscriber growth to revenue and profit. Advertising heading into 2023 is facing a slowdown because of the increase in interest and inflation and the looming recession. So all of these things create a totally different world for streaming to operate in in 2022, heading into 2023 that Bob Iger inherits versus what Bob Iger gave to Bob Chapek to kind of explore. And I think the key here is that it's not like he's going to go in and say we're returning to linear, right? Linear is still falling. If you look at ESPN, that went from over 100 million customers in 2011 to less than 75 million in 2021. That's like a huge drop within a decade. He's not going to go in and say we're pivoting back to linear, but he's also going to go in with this newfound data, this newfound understanding of what the streaming landscape really looks like and what it might look like and start to rejigger some of the strategies that he had put in place before he left. It also seems like there's this catch-22 for Iger in that he wants to expand the total addressable market of Disney Plus and Hulu and ESPN, all these things, of course, but it's just incredibly expensive. And Disney also has debt it needs to pay down that it took on from when Iger bought the Fox assets. He has been wary of price hikes. He's been wary of advertising, but it feels like there's something that's got to give here. So what is it going to be? The main mistake, in my opinion, that Bob Chapek did with streaming was increasing the goals that he publicly brought to the street. When Bob Iger, before he left, when he went and said, we're trying to aim for 60 to 90 million subscribers by 2024, he was underplaying what they knew they were going to get to. There's a reason you do this, right? It's kind of business school 101. You never overpromise. You always underpromise and overdeliver. This is why when we knew when Disney Plus came out on their first day and said we have 10 million subscribers, we knew pretty much guaranteed that there were going to be more than 10 million subscribers come the first year of Disney Plus. If Disney hadn't felt confident in that, they wouldn't have put out that number. What Bob Chapek did is he went in and he said, actually, we're increasing that goal. I, I believe the goal he gave was like 230 to 260 million subscribers. You're looking at huge multiples. You're looking at three times the multiple on subscriber growth, which means that you have to invest super hard into content programming and you have to find ways to bring in all these different subscribers. You can't slow down. At Bob Chapek's projection, they would have to add about 10 million subscribers per quarter over the next 10 quarters, which is easy to do to an extent 
when you're launching in new territories. But once you've launched in all your territories, I mean, ask Netflix. The bigger question is not necessarily adding huge amounts of subscribers every quarter. It's about retaining those subscribers and profiting off those subscribers. How do you actually turn those subscribers who are paying into a sizable profit margin? So the other thing that comes up with this is that Disney has a very strong linear networks business. And because of that, they have very strong profit margins on the linear networks, even as it's declining. So when you look at transitioning that, to streaming, that's a really, really long bridge that you have to cross. And it comes down to a precise moment of knowing when to catch those linear subscriber drop-offs and bring them over to streaming. This is the question with ESPN. Are the number of ESPN customers who are currently paying for ESPN on cable actually going to move over to an ESPN OTT? And ESPN OTT comes with additional increased costs because now you're long, you have the streaming service that you have to maintain. It also comes with increased sports rights. Everything about running that becomes much more challenging, even though it was one of the most profitable segments of Disney a decade ago. So as Bob Iger comes in and he starts to look at some of this data, there are going to be some questions that he has to explore. Should they start licensing more content again to Netflix, to Amazon, to Apple? A show like Grey's Anatomy is worth a lot of money to a Netflix because it's one of the shows that people are engaged with. It's a churn reducer for Netflix. If you bring that over to Hulu in-house, it doesn't necessarily mean that audience is going to follow with it. It might be more valuable to Disney to license it out, even if it means that you're no longer playing that exclusivity game. So these are all types of questions that Bob Iger is going to have to look at. And what's important here is that he's saying he was going to be here for two years. I really believe him. I don't think he's got a, you know, a decade ahead of him again at this company. And what he has to do is reset the strategic structure for Disney streaming so that whoever comes in next, whoever it might be, this needs to be part of the structure that they inherit based on new data and understand to carry them through the next decade with a focus not just on pure subscriber growth at any play, but in a way that creates a strong revenue from the customer base they have and does it without endangering the brand, which is the other thing that Bob Iger cares about. Bob Iger is someone who believes in creating a brand for long-term, multi-generational. So a lot of that is making things affordable and accessible. Bob Chapek, increasing prices at parks, increasing prices on Disney+, Plus, finding ways to kind of really play into how can we increase revenue in a very short period of time, may have long-term effects that Bob Iger might roll back in order to have a long-term gain. Obviously, one of the incredible strategic assets that Iger and Disney have is Hulu. On the other hand, there is also a brand question there. In that Hulu is just a different brand than Disney. It's more mature. It's more adult-oriented. It is definitely a different kind of content offering than the core programming you'll find at Disney, which is very family-oriented, that's built around the Star Wars IP and the Marvel IP. Is there a simple way for Iger to bring Hulu more in line with the Disney app or to change the pricing structure such that it reduces churn or that it increases the perceived value of this bundle? Do you think there's, he's going to have to make changes there? I think one of the things he'll walk back is he's not a big believer in the idea of, for example, horror films being on Disney+. Plus. In his mind, Disney+, Plus is a digital extension of the Disney brand, right? It is family. It is lifestyle, right? You start selling things on that platform that relate to Disney parks, that relate to Disney merchandise. It is a celebration of everything that that castle, the image of that castle evokes. So what does that make Hulu? Hulu was always designed under Iger to be the general entertainment platform that rivals Netflix. Now, that's a very expensive thing to do. Netflix spent tens of billions of dollars getting to the point where they had 50-50 original and licensed content on their platform in the United States. That's a very expensive thing to do. And if you're Disney, you know that NBC and CBS are going to pull some of their content off the platform. So you lose some of your demand share because some of that content goes to Peacock, goes to Paramount Plus. You have to figure out how to, how to you know, shape up that streaming service that is basically FX plus stuff. 
trying to figure out what that strategy is gets complicated. But when you look at the revenue side of things, it's got really strong average revenue per user on both the SVOD only, which is the streaming service, and then Hulu and live TV. So the advertisers are still flocking to Hulu and it's still less expensive for advertisers to be there in part because there's half the audience on Hulu. But I think the thing about Hulu that I didn't agree with Chapek on was although I believe that it should be much easier to go from hit Disney Plus to ESPN Plus to Hulu, I don't think it necessarily needed to be a tile on Disney Plus the way that Star is. I think what really works for Disney is that if you look at the US subscriber base, 40% of that subscriber base is bundled. Now, keeping in mind that we don't know what the average revenue per user, per user breaks down to be in that bundle, and that's a huge asterisk that we really need insight into, that also contributes to one of the lowest churn rates in the industry. I believe Antenna, a research firm, pointed out that it was about 2.2% churn for the Disney bundle compared to Disney Plus at 4.8%, compared to Netflix at about 3.6%, right? So the Disney bundle keeps people together. Also, when we're entering a period of, inc- of high uh, interest and therefore increased inflation, Although entertainment has not necessarily been a been a huge factor in, in people's choices uh, in the past, where we look at recessions, right? People still went to movies. It was that kind of cheap escapism, even as tickets got a little bit more expensive. They didn't necessarily cut that out. When we're looking at streaming services, they might they might start to say, "I don't use the service, and I can cancel it really easily, and I'm going to do that." What Hulu becomes is effectively an increase in perceived value of that Disney streaming bundle. It is a way to say you're getting three streaming services for the price of two, basically. And people are more willing to say, I'm going to spend $18 to get three streaming services than $18 to get one service if you combine Hulu into Disney Plus, right? It's just that human psychology. We're much more likely to say 18 for three makes more sense than 18 for one, even if the level of content in that one is the same as all those three if you combined it. But our brains and the way that we think are very much like, no, we want that deal. That's a great deal. I think what Hulu becomes for Disney Plus is glue. It's a sticking glue. It still makes good money. It's an area where Disney can roll out its general entertainment. It can work with 20th Century on movies and Searchlight and put stuff over there. It can really figure out what they want to turn that into with FX. And Bob Iger does not necessarily want that on Disney+. Plus. He wants to keep that its own brand. All right, last question for you. Iger's initial run, of course, was legendary in part because of all these historic M&A deals that he pulled off. He bought Pixar, Marvel, Star Wars, etc., Now he's presumably looking to execute some big plays again, maybe some potential sales of certain assets. Do you have a prediction? I think if we look at his investments that he made in his two years that he was not CEO, right, when he was kind of looking to just invest in companies, he was considering going into kind of VC. Like when we look at what his interests are, it's not traditional media per se, right? It's kind of this future between traditional media and the creator economy and the metaverse. And so my feeling whatever the next acquisition he would do at Disney would be, I think would be more in line with something like a Roblox than anything else. He's the CEO famous for saying that we don't need to do video games. We can't do video games. We're going to license. But I think as he really operates in a space where he understands that strong connection between consumer and the publisher, when he really starts to understand this ability to kind of own something that could be metaverse-like and how important Disney IP and Disney as a lifestyle fits into that, owning a world where he can, first of all, profit and then also control and command the attention of that consumer base, especially a young consumer base, and increase that multi-generational affinity makes more sense to me than buying, you know, hypothetically a candle media and bringing Kevin Mayer and Tom Sags back in-house. That just screams more of what Disney looks like as a future company of tomorrow instead of trying to pick up a content company and remaining, you know, a content company of yesteryear. So that would be my prediction. Something in games-ish creator 
ish, metaverse ish space, but still with strong ties to the Disney brand. And, and that supplements the Disney brand. Yeah. Well, we'll see what happens, Julia. We've got your prediction, I'm marking that down, and uh, we'll see how it all plays out. But totally a fascinating storyline. You've got a great piece up on Puck about this very topic that people should check out. But thanks as always for uh, stopping by and recording with us. Thank you and have a great Thanksgiving. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 